thank you for today. We thank you for the brilliant weather and sunshine you've been giving us the past few days. That lifts our spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it will always be timeless and true. Everything in it was true and relevant and powerful thousands of years ago, and it's every bit as true and relevant and powerful today. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us to wander aimlessly through this world, but you give us very clear instruction, very clear guidance. And Lord, we're grateful for that. So Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes and open our hearts to what you have for us today, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and do something in our lives, bear fruit, change our hearts. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For anyone following the 2019 NBA Finals earlier this month, it was an exciting series, wasn't it? The NBA Finals is the champion, for those who don't know, the NBA Finals is the championship series for the NBA, and it's similar in format to the MLB's World Series, where the team who gets to four wins in a seven-game series is the champion. That's how it works. Well beyond a clean sweep by a more dominant team, this year's series between the Toronto Raptors and the Golden State Warriors went on to game six. In the conference semifinal, prior to the finals, the bitter pill for many around here was the dramatic three-point buzzer-beater shot by Kawhi Leonard of the Raptors, which sent the Philadelphia 76ers home and the Toronto Raptors on to the Eastern Conference Finals. Glenn, can you play that video? Sorry, Sixers fans. That was, that was just cool. I'm sorry. You can, you can go to the next slide there, Glenn. We'll go ahead. There we go. The Toronto Raptors entered the finals having never won an NBA title in franchise history. The Warriors, however, led by Stephen Curry, had won the last two titles in 2017 and 2018. The Warriors were looking to win this year's finals and take home a three-peat championship. It was a series for sports history, where the Golden State Warriors defend their crown from the past two years. Those of you who followed the series know that, no, they would come up short in game six, and the Toronto Raptors would take home their very first championship in their franchise history. Speaking about defending one's honor, would you believe that the great Apostle Paul on more than one occasion had to de defend his own apostleship to those who kept calling it into question. See, to us, it's a no-brainer. He wrote most of the New Testament. It's a no-brainer to us that he was an apostle. It's a no-brainer that, that this is one of the men that God, Jesus' hand chose to be a bearer of his gospel message. But 2,000 years ago, Paul had to defend himself that he was indeed worthy to be recognized as one of Jesus' apostles, had apostolic authority, and had the same apostolic rights as the other apostles. 
as we've been working our way through this letter from Paul to the Corinthian church, we've been wrestling through some pretty tough teachings and Paul's instruction on different situations that were going on in the Corinthian church. The most recent controversy in the church that Paul had to address was that of whether or not the Corinthian believers should eat meat that had been dedicated and sacrificed to idols. Last week we looked at Paul instructed the Corinthians instructing the Corinthians that no one, mature believer or immature believer, no one should have anything to do with eating it publicly at pagan temple celebrations. Didn't matter that the, the pagan deity didn't exist and they, therefore the idol is meaningless. Doesn't matter. He didn't want people publicly joining in these things. If a mature believer thought it wasn't a big deal, since these pagan deities didn't exist and the idols that represented them were therefore meaningless and went ahead and, and, and partook in that celebration, an immature Gentile believer who saw them and just came out of that lifestyle and equated it with former, their former sinful lives would be strengthened to also eat it. That would be sin to them and the mature believer then was guilty of leading them to do that. The same person, as we read in our passage last week, that Jesus went to the cross to save. We talked about how I'm sure we could come up with several public scenarios where we have certain Christian liberties, but that it would be more loving towards our brothers and sisters to voluntarily relinquish some of, their, of those liberties for their sake. Now, Paul takes a turn in what he writes to the, the Corinthians. According to one biblical scholar, the grumblings and calling into question of Paul's apostleship, which Paul addresses more extensively in his second recorded letter to them, have already begun. They've already started simmering below the surface. We already know from earlier on in this letter that there were those who were leading different factions within the church and those who led a celebration mentality when it came to the grievous, grievously sinning man in chapter 5. As we'll see, there were other sources of grumblings. Whoever it was, whoever was doing the grumbling, it reached Paul's ears during his, sec during his two and a half year missionary stint in Ephesus that some in the Corinthian church were starting to cast off his apostolic authority even though Paul was the one who planted that church and had every apostolic right over that church. According to one biblical scholar, chapter 9 does not just start out a completely new topic from what he was talking about in chapter 8. It's actually connected to what Paul's been discussing in chapter 8. He ends chapter 8 with, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. The main point of that verse is, once again, that even though Paul has certain Christian liberties that are his right to take advantage of as a child of God, bought by the blood of Jesus, he would willingly give up a dietary one in love if the opposite meant causing a brother or sister in Christ to sin. He carries that same concept over to one major defense of his apostleship. So the first point in our passage this morning is the accusation. If you brought your Bible with you, turn to, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, you're not off the hook. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please take that and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want all of us to see this together. We're going to be starting in verse 1. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents if you're having trouble finding it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
We're going to be in verses 1 through 2. Paul starts out by telling those Corinthians who are calling his apostolic authority into question to take a step back and look at what they were questioning with logical eyes. Guys, let's just take a step back here and take a look at the bigger picture here. Verses 1 through 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, because you're the seal, you're the proof of my apostleship in the Lord. Again, as we've referenced before, if there was a term to describe what the Corinthian church struggled with the most, that basically all of these controversies connect with, it was self-centered arrogance, right? That's what we've been going over time and time again. One term to describe them would be self-centered arrogance. Paul is telling those questioning his apostleship, okay, let's just for a moment, humor me, for a moment, take your eyes off yourselves and look at this sensibly. The basis for being one of the, being an apostle was twofold. The definition for being an apostle was twofold. Firstly, you had to personally have seen Jesus after his resurrection, thus being an eyewitness of the resurrection. That's one uh, uh, requirement. Secondly, you had to be handpicked by Jesus to be his apostle and bear witness to his gospel. The original 11 were obviously handpicked by Jesus when he walked the, the earth. The 12th, Matthias had been with the other 11 when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist at the start of his ministry, all the way up through Jesus' ascension. He was there for the entire thing and was chosen by God's manipulation of the casting of lots. Paul, in his defense, says in verse 1 that he saw the resurrected and ascended Jesus with his own eyes and was also chosen by Jesus to be the 13th apostle. Others that we know of were Jesus' half-brother James, who wrote the New Testament letter, James, and Paul's traveling companion for a period of time, Barnabas. If some in the Corinthian church needed undeniable proof that he was an apostle and that he had apostolic authority over him, they need look no further than themselves. They were the proof of it. As a church, as Paul outright says, yeah, Other churches who weren't founded by me may question my authority over them specifically, but you don't have that luxury. Not only have I been called to be an apostle by Jesus himself, but I founded you, which gives me apostolic jurisdiction over you, whether or not you like it. You have no right to question that. We may think that this is an egotistical power move by Paul, but Paul is not doing it for himself. He's not doing it to puff himself up. In fact, as we'll see, Paul actually gives up one big right he should have had as an apostle. Paul is only defending this authoritative fact for their own good. So they have no reason to throw away the extremely important spiritual instruction he's been giving to them all this time. We know what it's been. We've been working through it. It's been tough, but it's been extremely important, hasn't it been? He didn't want to give them any reason to just toss that out the window because to them, they're grumbling that he didn't have the right to tell them that. Paul, just like us, knew humanity all too well. If it could be established in any way that Paul did not have apostolic authority over them, then they had no reason to listen to anything he instructed them. 
this is why he puts so much emphasis on this. And anything he was instructing them was only for their own good, their spiritual transformation and their growth. As I mentioned in a previous message, those who were throwing around their Christian liberty to eat sacrificed meat in celebration in pagan temples and were throwing it in the faces of their brothers and sisters were more of the well-to-do congregants who could afford to do such. They were the ones who could afford to eat this meat and therefore throw around their Christian liberty in everybody else's faces. According to one biblical scholar, these same well-to-do congregants were apparently complaining and grumbling about Paul's simple artisan lifestyle, as opposed to other traveling philosophers of that time. Let me explain. You see, one of the marks, one of the marks of true and worthwhile philosophers or an apostle was that he had enough financial support from people who listened to him and gave enough to him that he didn't need to work another job to support himself. That was a mark of a true and worthwhile philosopher. As Paul alludes to, even the other famous apostles did not need to work to support themselves. They just served and planted churches and people gave them money. Those who were questioning Paul's apostolic authority were using the fact that Paul was a leather and canvas worker to help financially support himself while residing in Corinth and establishing their church. They were using that against him. That's very strange, isn't it? Something that should have been seen as a virtue was instead being used to question and call out Paul's authority. But then again, nothing about humanity should surprise us does it? As we well know about the political world today, someone will use anything about an opposing political figure, like what their favorite restaurant is, what their favorite leisure activity is, whether, or what brand deodorant they use. They'll use anything to claim that they're not fit for the office that they hold. So these more well-to-do congregants who wouldn't want to give up any of their rights were saying, I don't want to give up my Christian liberty rights. Why should we listen to this guy? He's not like this other guy that we know of who doesn't need to worry himself with the commoners who have to work for a daily living because he has all these people throwing money at him. That obviously makes him a legitimate philosopher. Meanwhile, this guy, Paul over here, he worked, he worked long hours in the Corinthian leather and canvas working guild, hunched over a wooden table early in the morning and late into the night cutting out and sewing pieces of material together. What's his problem? Why doesn't he just do the same thing as the other philosophers and even the other apostles? Thus, he wants to prove it to us, for us to listen to him, that's what he should be doing. Why should we listen to him? This is the accusation against Paul. Secondly, this is Paul's response, his appeals. This is his response to this, these accusations that have reached his ears. Paul's response is in verses 3 through 5. This is what we read for a part of our scripture reading. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? These are all rhetorical questions. And one biblical scholar noted that the phrase, at the church's expense, is rhetorically added to the end of verse 5. Do we not have the right to eat and drink 
at the church's expense? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife at the church's expense, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, Paul is saying in these verses, are you kidding me? After everything I've done, are you kidding right now? Are you kidding me? Of course, I could have taken advantage of all the same rights as the other apostles take advantage of. That's not a mark against me. That's a decision to show you that I didn't want you to think I was trying to take financial advantage of you while I was planting your church. Are you kidding me? In fact, Barnabas and I had the right to buy food and drink with money that we received from you. We had the right to each have a believing wife accompany us on our travels and use money we received from you to support her, as in fact every other single one of the other apostles had, has been doing. Paul next says in verse 6, Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? In other words, Paul asks, are Barnabas and I the only ones who you don't factor into the honorable, the same honorable position as the other apostles? Are we the only ones that you don't count as apostles? Is the way we live our lives? We could earn your honor by asking you for money, by apostolic right, but we purposely don't. Therefore, us working manual labor jobs does not mean we're inferior to the other apostles and thus deserve less honor, but rather we do have that right. We just simply don't take advantage of it. We simply just don't use it. To back up the fact that he and Barnabas should be regarded as every much of an apostle as the other twelve and James and, and, and thus deserving of the right of monetary support, Paul writes in verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Paul uses three illustrations that those in this world that he's writing to would have been quite familiar with. All three occupational rhetorical questions could be answered, obviously, with a flat-out no. Not one. No one joined an army and paid his own way. He joined an army knowing he would be paid by the government to serve in that army. Likewise, no one planted crops or shepherded sheep without partaking in the harvest of that crop or milk of those sheep for their own physical sustenance and provision. This is the first appeal to Paul being every much as deserving of monetary support from the Corinthian church as the rest of the apostles. The second appeal is this, verses 8 through 10. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or his, is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. There are a couple of important things to take away from these verses. Firstly, one, especially one already grumbling about Paul's decision, would theoretically come back from verse 7 with the argument, yeah, but those are human illustrations. Where is the biblical support? 
Where in the Old Testament does it say that you deserve the same monetary support that, that, that supported those in the Old Testament tithe system? Verses 8 through, through 10 are Paul's answer to that anticipated argument and therefore a piece of New Testament support for those serving God in full-time ministry that they still be financially supported by the ministries God has given them to serve. Verse 9 is a reference to Deuteronomy 25.4, which is directly quoted in verse 9. Obviously, Paul is not saying that God, had, uh, that, that God does not care at all about oxen, for that was the original point in Deuteronomy 25, but only that God had something greater in mind when it was originally written. That wasn't his whole point. Just as a, a farmer shouldn't prevent an ox from consuming some of the grain it's threshing while it's doing the threshing, the congregants of a church should be financially supporting the minister while the minister is doing the work of the gospel. That's Paul's whole point here. Paul's third logical appeal is this, starting uh, uh, again in the second half of verse 10 into verse 12. Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the same right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. A farmer who goes through the back-breaking work of plowing a field has every expectation and every hope to partake in the harvest of that crop. They don't do it for no reason. They don't do it for fun. Likewise, someone who goes through the painstaking work of separating the chaff from the wheat during the threshing process does not do it without the expectation, without the hope of enjoying some of the fruits of his hard labor. Paul directly connects those images to him. He went through the back-breaking and painstaking effort to bring the Corinthians the gospel. He risked life and limb to do so. He's dealt with their disrespect and misunderstanding in order for them to grow in their faith. And above all, he's introduced the eternal hope of reconciliation with God through the death and resurrection to them. His question in this illustration is this. Why is he not just as deserving of this remuneration as his fellow apostles? He answers that rhetorical question with the answer that he is. And again, the only thing that separates him from that same support as his fellow apostles is that he purposely and through great difficulty did not take advantage of that right. Again, according to verse 12, his whole point in doing this was that he did not put up any obstacle to them putting their faith in Jesus. Paul did not want to run the risk for one nanosecond that any people in Corinth thought he was only there to get money from them. He didn't want them to think that for one second. He only wanted to give them something. He didn't want to get anything. He only wanted to give them something. The hope of the gospel, not to get anything from them. Now it's Paul's wish that the grumblers in Corinth don't take advantage of that 
fact and twist it around against him now. Paul's fourth appeal references the Levitical tithe system and the Mosaic law, and perhaps one of the strongest evidences of the tithe principle continuing on into the New Testament and therefore today. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Paul didn't need to make this reference. He's already built a strong case, and he has yet to pull out the biggest gun he has of all. He didn't need to make this reference. But there's a big reason that he did. The word tithe is a transliteration of the Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and it literally means tenth. When you think mathematically, tenth means ten percent of something, right? That's what a tenth means. Ten percent of what in terms of those who served in the Israelite tabernacle? Well, ten percent of the best of the land. This is what we read in Numbers 18. All the best of the fresh oil and all the best of the fresh wine and all of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I give them to you. This is God speaking to those who served in the tabernacle. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. That's what Paul is is referencing here. And that's what Paul directly references here in New Testament support of him having the right to financial support from the churches he's planted. You might say, yeah, but I thought we weren't under the ritual specifics of the Mosaic Law. Beyond Paul's reference here, clearly thrusting it into the New Testament as being as equally as important for those in full-time ministry today as it was to the Levites, the tithe actually originated pre-law. Pre-Moses, when Abraham gave a tithe to the priest Melchizedek. We don't have the time to get into all the details now. But Melchizedek has long been presumed by most conservative biblical scholarship of, if not outright, being the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself, then at least being a shadow pointing to Jesus. Thus, that experience is fulfilled in Christ, and we continue that practice of giving Christ our tithe by giving it to his body, to his church. Lastly, Paul gives the strongest piece of evidence he has in his arsenal, verse 14. So also the Lord, Jesus himself, directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Words that Jesus himself said. This is in direct connection with what Luke records Jesus himself saying to his disciples. He says, when they, before they went out to do ministry, he said, stay in that house, whoever opens their house up to you, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And that's what Paul is directly referencing here in verse 14. So by Paul saying this, not only is he quoting Jesus in his defense, the strongest proof of the truth about this, but he's also extending everything he's been saying about him as an apostle, having every right to monetary support as his fellow apostles. He's extending that to everyone who gives their lives to full-time ministry. 
That's what he's doing in verse 14. He's extending that to everyone who's, who gives their lives to full-time ministry. This is not to say that a, a, a bivocational minister is somehow being disobedient to this. That, that, this isn't saying that at all. Many factors prevent a church's minister from being financially supported by that church, and some sacrifice their time to do what Paul did in working another job to support them and their family. He's not being disobedient. This minister is not being disobedient to everything Paul has evidenced to this point. In fact, he's following in Paul's footsteps by giving that right up. So we have the accusation, we have the appeals, lastly we have the association. We'll circle back to Paul's contextual point next week in part two. For now, what this does say and gives very clear evidence for is the right that full-time ministers have to the financial support of their congregation. I know this is a very touchy subject. I'm probably going to make some people annoyed, maybe even angry. But I believe I've stuck as close to the Bible's upfront and concise teaching to show that this is not my assertion. Put, you can put the rocks down. This isn't my assertion. This is directly connected to this morning's passage, and it's in God's Word, so it will be preached. We've seen in Paul's evidence that if a congregation is deriving the spiritual reward from the preaching and ministry of the minister who is serving them, they should be positively giving financially to the church of which the minister derives financial reward, as Paul notes in verse 11. Let's read that again. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And the obvious rhetorical answer is no. This is done in as close to pattern we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we've seen through the congregation giving a tithe of the best of their harvest. Since most of us are not farmers, how does that translate to us today? The best of our harvest to the Lord would be our gross paycheck or source of income, whether it be from the government or another source, before the government or anyone else dips their hand into it. 10% of that gross income is entitled to the Lord through his church. You might argue, but doesn't Paul also tell the Corinthians, you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly in response to pressure? That sounds exactly what you're doing right now. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Doesn't Paul also tell the Corinthians that? Yes, he does. But the context is extremely important. When Paul, what Paul is referring to here, and you can look it up. You don't take my word for it. What Paul is referring to here is an offering above and beyond each person's tithe to give to a fellow impoverished church. That's what he's talking about there. That does not negate the tithe principle, but rather it affirms that we should be even more generous than the simple tithe to the church. We should not only give our tithes to the church, but also look for other ways to be a financial blessing to those in need. The biggest deterrent to obeying the tithe principle, let's just be honest, the biggest deterrent to obeying the tithe principle is the fear that we won't have enough money to pay our other bills. Let's just be honest. Believe me, I get that. I understand that. But I'm going to let you in on a little secret good thing you showed up today. 
I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you start obeying and following this, and you're, you're wise with the rest of what you have, you will have plenty to pay your other bills. Okay? That's the secret. In Malachi 3, God rebukes Israel for not following the tithe commandment and then gives them the promise of blessing if they start doing it. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? You've robbed me in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. This is very important here. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. How many other times do you see in the Bible where God says, test me? There aren't any. This is the one time in Scripture where God says, test me. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open for you the windows of blessing and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You see that? Out of all the things we're not supposed to test God with, this is the one thing God actually wants us to try out and test him on. I certainly am not advocating prosperity or you're just going to get rich out of this. But what I am pointing out is that if we all follow this and trust God with it, he wants to surprise us and show us point blank how much we can trust him with following this. Paul carries on this principle in referring to that above and beyond offering to the Corinthians. When directly talking about financially giving the above and beyond offering, he says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And God, God, will generously provide all you need then you will always have everything you need. You see that? It's not my words. This is what's in the Bible. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Let's test him in this. Let's see what happens. Let's let God surprise us. This is encouraging and exciting. Let's all, as one, test God on giving the tithe and additional offerings and see how much he gives to us to be even more generous with those in need. Not for us to hoard, for us to then give that away to those in need. How do we want to be known? Let me ask, let me ask you that, brothers and sisters. How do we want to be known as individuals and as a church? How do we want to be known in this world and in this, in this community? as not trusting of our Heavenly Father? Well, who wants that? Who wants to look at that in our lives and say, well, I'm doing that right now. Why would I want Jesus? You already don't trust Him with everything in your life. Do we want to be known as that? Or do we want to know, be known as generous people, trusting that God will provide that to give and everything we need? Even though Paul's point 
was that he gave up this right for his ministry to the Corinthians. Nevertheless, he provided strong and clear New Testament support for us as believers today to continue this obedience. Brothers and sisters, in faith, let's test God. Let's follow exactly what God says in Malachi 3. Let's all, as individuals and as one, test God in giving him our tithe and additional offerings and let's see what he'll do. Let's just see. Let's see what he'll do. Let's let him surprise us. Let's see how generous he will be with us so that we can be even more generous with others and through that be the bearers of good news of salvation in Jesus in a very real way. So our closing question is, don't close your Bibles yet. Everybody pay attention. Our closing question is this. Do we trust God? Do we trust God with this enough to do something about it? Do we trust God enough with this to actually do something about it? While other behaviors require time for the Holy Spirit to transform us, this is something we can do right away. This is an immediate change we can make. And let us together, as one, witness what God will do through his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these powerful words. It's a touchy subject, but again, Lord, you give us very clear instruction for how you want us to live, how you want us to act. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that's too scared to do this, I pray that you would churn in them. You would let them know, hey, I got you. Test me in this. Give your tithe and see what I'll do. Lord God, I pray that as one, we would make whatever changes we need to make with, it, with our finances so that we can obey you in this and that we can be a powerful force for good with our generosity. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.